Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each Thursday, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. Enjoy the show! This is your favorite organizer, Kelly Freeman. Uh, this week we have uh, a speech from our other organizer in Northern Ohio, Hannah Servadio. She was at the Women's March last week in Cleveland, um, and her speech is great, so take a listen. My name is Hannah Servadio. I am the Northern Ohio field organizer for NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. <laughs> NARAL is the state's leading advocacy organization dedicated to protecting reproductive health care access through policy and legislation. Title aside, I am a sister, a daughter, a proud Jewish woman, an activist, a clinic escort, and a person that believes deeply in the core value that encompasses this march, that all women have the inherent right to liberty. Because of that value, I am here today to say loudly and unapologetically that I am pro-abortion. Not just pro-choice, but pro-abortion. Not just publicly rallying, but silently stigmatizing when I'm not in front of people. Pro-abortion. I'm also pro-birth control, pro-adoption, pro-maternal health care, pro-paid family leave, pro-ending pregnancy discrimination. I can be all of those things at the very same time. I am pro whatever decision that you decide to make with your body, whether you choose to stay home and raise children or you want to go on a different path entirely. However, when the specific legal right to safe and accessible abortion care continues to be chipped away at by our elected representatives, it is our responsibility to tackle that stigma and speak out consistently. But the one issue voter argument, right? Progressives should stay in their lane, focus on other policy, abortion should matter, right? We can't do that because the root of a strong, prospering, equitable society starts with the ability of every single person to be able to control when and if they start or expand their families. Reproductive policy is economic policy. Reproductive rights are human rights. One out of every three women in this country have had or will have an abortion at some point during their lives. For some people, this is an emotional experience. For others, it is the best decision that they will ever choose to make. Regardless of why someone chooses abortion, we must respect the freedom in that choice. On behalf of these women, on behalf of the ones that have died because of lack of access, on behalf of the women in this country already living post-Roe, We must continue this fight. This, oh shoot, hold on, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) This march is not about a catchy chant or a picture of a uterus on a sign. This march is about recognizing that we are all bound to each other. This march is about acknowledging the lived experiences of black women, of Asian women, of Jewish women, of bisexual women, of Muslim women, of disabled women, of trans women, of poor women, of elderly women, of uh, incarcerated women, of addicted women. Women you disagree with. This march is about looking within our own movement to do better and authentically work together on behalf of these injustices. 
as a part of an interpretive translation of the Talmud by Rabbi Rami Shapiro and my favorite quote in the entire world, you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Thank you very much. Now we march. Everybody head in that direction. Next up, we have a conversation with Robin Marty uh, that Gabe had about her new book, The Handbook for a Post-Roe America. Uh, it's a really great discussion, and you should totally check out her book. Uh, hey, I'm Gabe, and we are talking today with a very special guest, uh, Robin Marty. Uh, Robin, how the hell are you? I am fantastic, Gabe. So glad to be here. Okay. Um, it's good to see you again. Uh, we haven't seen you since you came around many years ago um, with your previous book, Crow After Row. Um, after that first round of Ohio defeating the six-week ban. Yeah, I'm starting to feel like you only want to talk to me when I put out a book, which I guess I understand, but also it seems like some things never change because every time we talk, Ohio has a heartbeat ban that didn't quite make it. Which right, is, but... right. We, we do it every two years, so... <laughs> um, but yeah, you do have a new book. So the new book, uh, I read it last night, it's the handbook for a post-row America. Um, I'm really impressed. I think it's terrific. Great. Um, recommend it to everybody. We'll put links in the show notes for how they can order it. Um, I, of course, ordered it on Amazon. And then like the next day, Jamie walked in and said, oh, here's a link where people can buy Robin's book through an independent bookseller site. <laughs> so, sorry. Uh <laughs> That's okay. I actually am fine with people ordering it through Amazon. My preference, if people are going to order it through Amazon, which I believe it's actually a little cheaper, is do it with a smile. So get it through whatever sort of smile link you might have on Amazon that then gives a donation to your favorite group. Preferably, um, Narrow Pro-Choice Ohio, I assume, has a... Yes. yes. So if you order it through a link that helps them, then you can be forgiven for all of your Amazon sins by supporting Narrow Ohio in the process. Done. Um, okay, so Handbook for a Post-Row America. Um, this is maybe the most up-to-date book I've ever read. Um, <laughs> it talks about Governor-elect um, Mike DeWine saying that he would... Uh, indeed sign the six-week ban right. uh, if it were to be reintroduced. Um, so this thing is is hot off the presses for you. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if a lot of people know how books normally work, but in traditional publishing, what happens is a person will send in a proposal. The proposal maybe get looked at and then possibly picked up. They'll be dickering around for a couple of months about what the actual contract is. There'll be another six months to a year before your manuscript needs to come in. Once that happens, it's still usually another year out before a book will actually hit the shelves. So we're talking about a two-year process. For me, the proposal went out and was accepted within a matter of two weeks with the caveat that they wanted the entire manuscript in two months later. Um, <laughs> understanding that they were going to then have it published and out for the row anniversary. So that was a six month timeline um, from the point in which the contract was signed to the point in which the book is now in people's hands. And we literally updated it all through that process. Um, the absolute 
final bits that were updated happened in late November. And I believe we went to press, actually to the printer, um, first week of December. So that's how wow. fresh this is. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly up to date. Um, that was that was the first thing that struck me. The second thing is this is a handbook. Yes. This is a manual. This isn't a um you know your standard uh sort of uh you know rundown full of um big broad opinions and long histories. I mean you definitely start out with uh, some important background and basic set of, uh, you know, history that everybody needs to know, which, you know, even as somebody who's been working in this field for 10 years, I still found it informative and a really terrific refresher. Um, if you've never known the history of abortion rights following, you know, up to before Roe and following Roe and all of these years, um, this was uh, very um, informative. But the bulk of the book is a handbook. How did you come to the idea of creating, um, you know, a how-to guide for people looking for abortion right. access? So what happened was, as soon as Anthony Kennedy announced that he was going to be retiring from the Supreme Court, everyone immediately thought, okay, this is the end of Roe v. Wade, which it probably is. Um, but the first thing that happened was that everybody was reacting online by saying one of two things. They were saying, A, I'm going to go donate to Planned Parenthood, and B, I'm going to stockpile emergency contraception. Right. And those two reactions are basically what happens anytime there's any sort of national news on abortion. And while both of them are good ideas, they're also in essence, really not great for abortion access in general. Giving to Planned Parenthood is always a good idea, but when it comes to states where abortion clinics, there's often only one or just a couple, many of those states, their clinics are not Planned Parenthood clinics. So you're not directly impacting the places that you need to. Also, when it comes to stockpiling EC, there's a really alarming, there's a lot of bad ways to do it. Going and buying all of the emergency contraception in your local drugstore means that when somebody actually does have an emergency, there's not anything on the shelves. Um, saying that you're gonna get it all together and then you're going to give it to people who need it, that's not necessarily good because a lot of people aren't going to want to contact a stranger for emergency contraception. Whereas if they know that there's a reproductive rights or reproductive justice group that's in their city, that's a place that they would be more comfortable getting emergency contraception. So the first thing that hit me was there are so many people out there who now see the reality of abortion access completely disappearing and want to do something, but they don't know the right thing to do. So the idea was it's almost kind of a travel guide to navigating a landscape where there's no abortion. So right. it, what do you do in these states? Where are the groups that you can go help participate with so that you're not starting your own groups and pulling resources from people who are already doing it on the ground and have better access? Um, how do you talk to your doctor to make sure that if we're in a point where abortion is illegal, that your doctor is not going to be a person who is going to chastise you or block you from finding legal care or even worse, turn you into the police if you decide to go outside the legal system. So it's all of these different tactics that need to be taken and need to be looked at that people don't think about until all of a sudden there's no longer legal abortion around them. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. You know, by page six, I was tearing my hair out because you talk <laughs> about 
the history um, in a really nice, clean, concise uh, few pages. Uh, and then you very quickly transition to, okay, you know, that's where we were. Here's where we're at. What's going to come next in a very short timeline? Um, and so you outline several, uh, several perspective paths that different states or the nation as a whole might end up going down, you know, later this year, yeah. uh, next year, you know, in the next couple of years. Um, that was just kind of eye-opening and shocking, even though I work for a NARAL affiliate and we discuss this stuff all the time. Um, how did you come to, you know, uh, those uh, hypotheticals and which one do you think is, is most likely to occur? So the hypotheticals that I laid out were that abortion would be made completely illegal across the whole United States. That's one. It's not going to happen. I don't right. see it happening anytime because abortion is too much of a political easy reach for the GOP. Because as long as they can say, hey, we're going to stop abortion, then they have all these people who will come and support them and vote for them, regardless of every single other policy that they might disagree with. So abortion completely disappearing is not going to happen. That leaves us with two possibilities. One is that either Roe is going to be overturned and there are going to be a number of states that will not have legal abortion within there. The second is that Roe is going to be upheld, but because the Supreme Court is so conservative now, they would not actually block any of the rules that states were trying to do on their own. So originally, if you'd asked me a week ago, I would have said that that scenario was the most likely, that we would see a Supreme Court that would hear a case and they would say, we are still going to leave Roe in place because we respect precedent and we say that there is a right to an abortion. However, we are not going to do anything that would block a, per a state's decision to somehow regulate abortion out of existence. So for instance, an Ohio heartbeat ban, once it finally did pass, would be upheld by the Supreme Court. Every state would be able to restrict abortion any way they wanted to, just as long as they kept it technically legal. If you have a state where there's only one abortion clinic, then what would happen is the state could regulate that abortion clinic out of existence. Abortion is still legal in Mississippi, but it wouldn't have a clinic. That's how I saw this happening. Um, but then I went to the March for Life last week. I went to <laughs> that was fun. I know. That's a nice pivot. And then I went to the March for Life. I went to the March for Life, and one of the things that I do as a reporter is, and as an activist in general, is I go and I talk to lots of anti-abortion leaders and people who are high up in the movement. And the general impression from all of them is that they do believe that Kavanaugh is going to overturn Roe. They do not think that Kavanaugh has any issue about upturning precedent, and they think that this is going to happen and is going to be happening soon. They're already making their own post-Roe plans as to what they're going to do when abortion is illegal in different states in order to kind of smooth over any bad feelings that people might have not having abortion in their states anymore. So they're working on that reality, and I have never known them not to work on a reality just hypothetically. They do it when they know right. they have. So what we're going to see is probably at least 10 to 15 states that are going to make abortion completely illegal. 
that's really impactful because we're not just talking about 10 or 15 states, but we're talking about 10 or 15 states that are mostly in one block. So we're talking about almost the entirety of the Southeast of the US will have no abortion access whatsoever. Um, we're gonna see a lot of Rust Belt states that are going to be considering the same. I don't know where Ohio is going to fall at this point. They, I was told that there's going to be about 20 states where it's going to be a fight on the ground and that they're not entirely sure which direction things are going to go. Considering how your legislature is right now and now with Governor DeWine, I don't think things look good for Ohio at all, but right. there's still a possibility of enough groundswell pressure from activists and from regular Ohioans Nobody wants abortion to be completely illegal in their state, quite frankly, except for the very, very far right evangelicals and Catholics and religious people. Right. So in all honesty, I'm feeling better about things than I was the week before because we spent, I know it is, it is The funny. March made you feel better. The March for Life made me feel better about abortion rights. You're the only person in America. I'm the only person in America who a lot of things, quite frankly. But we've been fighting this idea of trying to keep abortion accessible for a decade now. Um, straight hard on ever since since the Tea Party election and when all the model bills start stripping the rights from states one by one. Right. So having this absolute turning point, having states where abortion is completely illegal, that's something people can understand in a way that trying to explain, okay, nobody can get to your clinic because it's too expensive, it's too far away, and they have to do two trips 72 hours apart. That's not something that people can really wrap their heads around. Completely right. illegal abortion is something that people get and in some ways having Roe overturned and having that happen and having it be undeniable that may be the best thing that could happen to our movement wow okay <laughs> <laughs> um in in your tips of actions that people can do um you know you said stockpiling ec um you know looking at which states are going to be legal which states are going to ban it um, run for office was uh, a pointer. Uh, is that really necessary? To run for office? It's always necessary to run for office. But quite frankly, like, run for office if that's a thing you want to do. Um, running for office is awful, is, is my understanding. I don't want to <laughs> tell people not to do it. But if you are a personality that likes fundraising, that likes talking in front of groups, that really likes that sort of massive spotlight of attention, then yes, this is absolutely the time that you should do it. But I also think that we need to recognize that running for office isn't the solution to everything. Um, we need people to run for office, but we need people to run for office who feel that that is their calling and not just feel like they're obligated. Because especially over the last two election cycles, running for office is ugly. Running for office gets you hammered in the press it gets you attacked online it's it's not for the faint of heart in any way shape or form but if you do feel called to run for office do it and also if you feel called to run for office especially if you live in a state that's hostile to abortion rights do it at a very local level do it at the state legislature level or do it at the city council level 
one of the situations that we'll be looking at is the fact that we're going to have these very red states that are hostile to abortion but might still keep it legal and then we're going to have abortion clinics that are only in very liberal cities but if there are conservative people who take over the city councils there's so many ways that an abortion clinic can be forced out of business just by regulations by zoning ordinances changing by people protesting at the clinic. So there's a lot of really concrete things that people can do at a city council level, such as go for noise ordinances, um, that sort of thing that can really have a massive impact without the utter fraughtness of being a senator or a congressperson. Right. Um, you know, and then the next quote on the, uh, in that section is, you know, if all else fails, we're going to need a revolution. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of things in your book that are really terrific points, um, that contribute to the discussion of reducing and eliminating stigma around this and, and really kind of taking that point to every level of the discussion. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a communications guy for a NARAL affiliate. If I worked for a breast cancer organization, they would bring me out to the 50 yard line at NFL games once a season and hand me a massive check for the, you know, donations that all of their staff had put together. That doesn't happen for abortion rights organizations. Right. Um, you know, stigma and, and um, you know, the, the stigma that we talk about is frequently just a discussion of protesters outside clinics, but we're really going to have to look at this of, you know, how does every part of society view abortion care? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that this was, you know, really helpful to, to look at it that way of, you know, is your city council going to be active in this? Um, you know, what sort of conversations are you going to have with your, you know, your general practitioner doctor? Um, you well, know, would you be willing to go to jail? You know, should that be necessary? Right. And that's one of the things that I think is actually really important and was kind of understated is the fact that stigma isn't just about your society. Stigma is about your family as well. Um, when I discuss whether a person should participate in civil disobedience in any way, shape, or form, anything from getting arrested protesting to are you going to help somebody access an abortion if it's illegal, um, one of the things that I talk about is that you need to discuss with your family, with your partner, if this is something that you are going to do. And if this is something that you don't feel comfortable even talking to your family about wanting to do, that in itself is a sign that maybe this is not a, a tact that you should you should approach. And so it really brings to the forefront the idea that a lot of people have passionate feelings about this issue and don't feel that they can even talk to their own family about things. And so that's really something that we have to, it's not just shout your abortion and bursting stigma on a national level. It's about individual relationships all the way down to your family. Right, right. Um, you make a very good point, uh, dedicating an entire chapter to the discussion of uh, what's the difference between reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Um, providing information to RJ groups, um, including ones here in Ohio, like Root and New Voices, which mm -hmm. I totally loved. Um, you want to talk a, a minute about, you know, what sort of role 
uh, you see them playing in the movement? I do. And their role is basically essential and frankly should have always been essential. And it's getting, getting to a point where because RJ groups are in essence, working in the community, uplifting these community voices, and also networking in a way that we're not seeing, quite frankly, from our national organizations. Um, they're interconnected in a space that is far more accessible than, than a lot of reproductive rights groups. And so we need to, their biggest issue right now, as they say, is just they don't have the resources to do what they could be doing. Why don't they have the resources? That is something that we all need to look at individually. And it's why I specifically say that you need to look at reproductive justice groups. You need to make sure that when you are finding places to donate, especially, but also volunteer, that you're putting those groups first. But also you need to look at your own reproductive rights organizations that you're thinking about working with and ask them, where are the people of color? Where are the marginalized communities? Why are those people not being front and center in your boards, in your leaders? Because if they're not doing that, then they are not addressing the communities that are going to be the ones who are already suffering the most and need the most help and can do the most good with resources when given to them. And ironically, I may have actually read that at a at a event earlier this week, and it made some people uncomfortable because I wasn't intending to read any part of my book, but then I was told that there was extra time, so pick something, and I decided to talk to this very privileged, um, primarily white audience and explain to them why they need to be giving everything that they can right now and focusing front and center on reproductive justice groups. You know, I, I got an email once from a supporter of ours who said that uh, they would be much more likely to get involved with our stuff if we had additional photos of older white women um, in our materials. Wow. <laughs> like, oh. So, yeah, that's and this, this right here, this is why we need reproductive justice groups to be getting the resources because. Oh my gosh, if old white people only can respond to old white people, that is the problem with our movement right there. Right. I, I took it as a point of pride because I thought, well, if she needs to see more older white people, then maybe my photos are at least we're properly but, representing the rest. Yeah, I've, I've hit some minimum bar of, of diversity in my <laughs> in my photographs. Um, OK, so then the, the section after that goes into some really amazing, very medically accurate information on home abortions, um, you know, and then kind of a, a yet another eye opener of, you know, how to hide your tracks. This really comes across as sort of the uh, type of, you know, handbook that in the 1960s hippies would have, you know, <laughs> made copies of on home printing presses and distributed hoping that the FBI wouldn't get a hold of them. Yeah, when I originally pitched the publisher, I called it the anarchist cookbook of abortion and yeah. they like that. <laughs> I what's what's the feeling that you get when you're assembling all of this this information in this fashion? Um one that is slightly desperate because First of all, how do you get it to the people who are going to need it the most? I mean, publishing right. in itself is really frustrating because this is stuff that I want every person to be able to access. 
and they shouldn't be able to be blocked because they don't have the money for it. Um, all of these things. So like if I had a way to do it, I would buy like a thousand copies and just dump them places in random, random situations. Um, one of the problems that we're really dealing with right now is as, as you pointed out, and as is in the book, most of our electronic footprints are tracked. And so a great deal of the information that I provide is on the internet, but it needs to be accessible in a way that a person doesn't need to do it through the internet. Um, right. Because once somebody pulls up a, a web link for post handbook, then if that person has a miscarriage, all of a sudden the first thought is, okay, did that person try and induce their own abortion? Is that something that we can check on? Right. So how do you make this information accessible, free, um, but also in a way that doesn't leave a trail? And so far, the best thing that we've been able to come up with is if, if all of your listeners can do one thing at all, it's ask your local library to carry the book. Um, hopefully they won't say no, but at the very least, if people know that it's out in their libraries, they can go and see it on the shelf, get the information that they need. Um, most people still have, well, no, you probably can't take a picture of it with your phone either unless you're going to delete your phone pictures afterwards, but you can at least see the information. Um, and that way you can get that information without leaving any sort of electronic trail. Right. Yeah, I mean, we we had a very similar conversation this morning um, when I came in and, you know, when I told people in the office, hey, I was going to be talking to you about the book. Um, and Jamie said, you know, she'd love to get a bunch of copies. Um, but, you know, her first inclination is, okay, it's a book, let's have a book club. It's not really a book club kind of book. And I said, you know, honestly, it's it's something that you'd buy a bunch of copies with bundle it up with clean pairs of socks and drop them off as care packages to domestic violence shelters. Right. Or getting them onto just dropping them in random places on college campuses, um, right. things like that. In a lot of ways, the idea of distributing this is the same way as distributing emergency contraception. Like, no, you don't want any person to stockpile it in a bad way, but there are very good access points that we know exist that if you can get a bunch of it to there, then that is going to help with the populations that would be most affected and both most need it. Right. Um, so here in Ohio, of course, we are, uh, like we talked about at the top of the conversation, um, last, uh, thing I want to ask you about, uh, before I let you go, um, is, is more of, you know, looking at Ohio, uh, Janet Folger Porter, our, our friend, uh, who pushes her, her heartbeat bill. Um, she sent out an email on Martin, on Martin Luther King day. Of course she did. Um, supporting Steve King. And, oh my God. Yeah. And, and asking people, uh, to contact Republican members of Congress and forgive him uh, for his racist comments. That was her Martin Luther King Day email. That, um, wow. Wow. I thought the whole Mike Pence saying that Donald Trump was, was very, very similar to Martin Luther King because they both enacted change was about as low as one could go. But no, that's good. That's wow. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I know you're going to be revisiting uh, Crow after Row um, uh, and, and revising your, your previous book. 
Um, are are you going to be coming around to Ohio to uh, visit the circus as this all continues? Yeah, well, I have to assume that y'all are going to be getting a bunch of teddy bears or flowers or whatever it is that she decides to do this year on Valentine's Day, which I assume is when it's going to get reintroduced since that's kind of her favorite jam. Right. Um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, I am going back through Crow After Row, and that's going to be republished in at the end of August, and it's going to be called The End of Roe v. Wade, because I'm a ray of sunshine. Um, and, and it's going through all of the original chapters and updating them um, with what has happened since 2013, because obviously so much has happened since 2013, but also adding in things that are new threats that we never even thought about back then, such as d e bans, which we, we, I mean, that wasn't even on our radar. And now that could very well be the thing that ends abortion access for so many people just because abortion will be limited to the first trimester. Um, there's, there's so much that's going to be updated and changed. And it's in some ways horrifying to see, this is a book that it, it can never be kept up to date enough because there's always so many new threats. And that's that's utterly disturbing. And frankly, the reason why I wrote the handbook, because at some right. point, abortion has to be out of this political legal system altogether. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the changes that have happened since your, your 2013 book, I mean, the update to that almost looks like a set of encyclopedias, I would think. Well, and I mean, when we were looking at things that we were going to have to add, we realized Whole Women's Health, the Hellerstead, hadn't even happened yet when we published the first time. And then that became the new the new metric for trying to decide what was going on with trap laws and with admitting privileges and all of that. That is all just the last five years. Just in the last five years, it has changed so dramatically in both directions. Right. Okay. Um, fun times. Leaving on a high note. Um, so again, handbook for post rope America. Robin Marty links uh, in the show notes um, on on exactly how to get a copy or you know twenty. Um, and I do want to tell your your listeners really quickly that it is a book, but I don't believe in keeping information to myself. So there is a website called postrowhandbook.com. And on that website, the first thing that you'll see is a United States map. And there's a United States map that below it has listings to every national organization that works on abortion issues in any way, shape, or form so that you can go check out any of them that you want to. But if you go and check on your individual state. Each state, when you click on it, has all of the clinics that are in your state, all of the reproductive justice groups, reproductive rights groups, political action groups that do things for abortion um, funders, abortion funds, abortion practical support groups, clinic escorts, basically anything that you can think of so that you can get involved at a local level. Awesome, okay. Well, thank you very much, Robin. Thank you, Gabe. <laughs> okay. We'll talk to you later. Okay, thanks again. Okay, bye. bye. And as far as upcoming events go, we have uh, Roe versus Wade turns 46. There's a benefit for Women Have Options this Friday at St. James Tavern. That's January 25th. Um, you can check out some uh, workshops on how things work at the State House. It's a series. 
On February 18th, that's President's Day, uh, there will be a cookie decorating party at the NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio office in Columbus. Uh, if you want to know more about what's happening there, you can email me at kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, F as in Freeman, at prochoiceohio.org. And the next day is going to be Columbus Stands Up for Choice, Benefiting Women Have Options. That's at Ace of Cups. It's a quarterly show. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so that's what we have going on for now. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks.